0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott.
1: I'm Jesse.
2: And I'm Greg.
0: Hello, everybody. Hi, guys. And welcome to our Sheckley extravaganza.
1: A two story extravaganza. <laughs> I think extravaganza probably means like multiple, multiple, multiples. Oh, story. okay. I could be wrong about that.
0: <laughs> well,
1: yeah, it's we're going to. It's a jamboree.
0: jamboree. <laughs> a jamboree. A hoot nanny.
2: Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Fine. Um, yeah, we've got two stories uh, by Robert Sheckley today. One of them's called uh, The Seventh Victim, and the other one's called Untouched by Human Hands.
1: Now, Seventh Victim is actually uh, – uh, it, it. Yeah, okay. it doesn't have a – It doesn't have a the? Yeah. Okay. doesn't have a article in front of it. All right. Um, although ever, later editions would add the or change the title to uh, Tenth Victim or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, I um, was at the uh, library yesterday, and I picked up a book called Is That What People Do? The Selected Stories of Robert Sheckley. And uh, seventh, <laughs> seventh Victim was in there, and um, – Let's see. Yeah, and there is no the on it.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the original title.
0: Okay. And the other one has an original title called One Man's Poison. Mm -hmm. So it was published in the magazine that way. And then um, I don't know what the story is on why it was changed or whatever. But Untouched by Human Hands is a good title.
1: Uh, One Man's Poison gives away the, uh, the, the, I guess, the starting point of the story or the... uh, the idea point of the story.
0: One mm-hmm. man's business yeah.
1: is another man's meat.
0: Right. right. Uh, is
1: that a phrase, an idiom, some sort of idea?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I've, ne- I've not heard that one before.
2: Hmm. Gotcha. I, I, I thought that um, it was changed for his first short story collection. or Yeah, that's what was. the collection is called.
1: Yeah,
0: the title t- of the yeah. collection is Untouched by Human Hands. Right. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they changed it just for that reason. I don't know.
1: He he wrote it with his mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is true.
2: Well, yeah. technically on the typewriter, you can have somebody else take the pages out. So you it could be, well, no, wait a minute. I guess you'd have to have your dog take the pages out or something. But <laughs> <laughs> you could do it untouched by human. So loading <laughs> the pages is the hard part. Yeah. Right. Yeah, good point. Well, you put a roll of shelf paper in then. Mm-hmm. robot hands perhaps. It's all one page, you know, like right. on the road. That that would work. Yeah, that's what that's what Kerouac did. And uh, and he also wrote it without any paragraphs or anything like that, and the editors just refused to publish it that way and chopped it up. But it was supposed to be one long stream of consciousness.
1: It'd be hard to uh Return to the library and, and get it on the shelf. Like if it's, it was well,
2: a, if it's the library at Alexandria, scroll. everything else is on a scroll. That's yeah. true.
1: That's true. Mm-hmm. How did he get? How did he even find a sheaf of paper that long?
2: Shelf paper for like kitchen cabinets. Ah, I see. Works great. Yeah. It, <laughs> <laughs> is that how you write your books? No, 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 no. Um, even well, though I mean, when I started, I still have it somewhere my smith corona manual typewriter which has seen several bloody campaigns Um, (laughs) but uh but i i actually loved the tactile sense of that more than uh the way i write now which is on a keyboard and uh, but i i love the idea of being able to edit on the fly and spell checking and all that other stuff that (laughs) is worth everything so Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I just have the nostalgia associated with my age group for things that were cool when I was young and I recognize what it is and keep it in context, but I'm still nostalgic for that simpler time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. William Shakespeare loved his pen too. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I've, I've grown to love the pen more and more. You know, I've tried every type of planning type of thing that's out there, you know, the franklin covey's and all that stuff you know because when when i get really busy i need to have lists of things and i've found after all of that trying to use the little handheld devices the iphones and all that stuff i still love to draw circles i still love to you know draw lines and things and make lists by hand you know so the thing that works best for me
2: is a notebook (laughs) yeah and and i do that too i have a Mm -hmm. little mole scheme yeah yeah. graph paper notebook that i keep in my back pocket and that is my organizer mm-hmm. and uh, i still have a smartphone but i don't i don't keep track of you know i don't open up the voice thing and say notes to self do this tomorrow <laughs> you know yeah just, it's it's I an obstacle little, uh, yeah it's great
0: yeah. it's great for putting the addresses in it's great and for keeping all the phone numbers in but it's not great for note taking it really right. isn't yeah i'll tell you what i do
1: i use my my iPhone to keep, keep track of my notes, uh, but I just use the camera. So I, I write something on the whiteboard, take a picture. <laughs> got a business
2: card, take a picture. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's not that uncommon. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people in business take pictures of whiteboards after meetings and stuff and then send them around. That's really common.
1: Mm-hmm. The new thing I've got is a, a whiteboard that when you write on it, it transfers it to the monitor.
2: Yeah, I've seen them. They're very cool. They
1: are cool. Yeah, that is yeah. neat. I've it working at, but I have got a working app, but I do have it.
2: Hmm. I want it. I want it to read what I wrote and fix the misspellings.
1: <laughs> I, that it would may be do handy. that.
2: That would be handy. Yeah.
1: I yeah. just hope it does it in color, too.
2: <laughs> yeah, the ones I saw do. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, well, well cool. we, we should yep. talk more about the stories, I think. <laughs> All right. Sure. What do you think?
0: That <laughs> sounds good. Which yep. one should we start with?
1: Uh, why don't we start with uh, One Man's Poison? Because I, I, okay. I, don't, I don't think I'm going to have a lot to say about it, and I, I think I will have a lot more to say about The Seventh Victim.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that um, this is, could have gone really nice in our food episode.
1: Oh, completely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: my, my very first question after finishing this story, or actually smack in the middle, was um, surely Douglas Adams has read Robert Sheckley. Does anybody know no. if that's true or not? But I mean, it sure felt like
2: a Hitchhiker's Guide um, scene. There's a quote here from him on the on Sheckley's Wikipedia page, Wikipedia page that says, "I had no idea the competition was so terrifyingly good." <laughs> so yeah, I don't it. think
1: he, I, I don't think he knew until uh, after he had written the um, the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think people were comparing the two, and he was like, Oh,, well, somebody like me. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I think the comparisons are valid, but I, I do think of them as two separate. Sheckley is Sheckley's not as vaudevillian as Douglas Adams is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Douglas Adams goes for the joke, and he'll he'll do a lot of setup, whereas Sheckley is has a long view on the thing. and... And what's really amusing is the absurdity of the premise more than the, uh, you know, just the setup of a bump, mm-hmm. you know, a, a right. joke. Like,
0: so. It's true. Yeah, gotcha. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't disagree with that. And um...
1: it's funny, even though, the, you know, Douglas Adams is a novel writer, supposedly. <laughs> <laughs> Sheckley's well, mostly known for his short stories.
2: But uh, Douglas Adams got started as a script guy on That's the BBC. True. So, and he worked on. Uh, a couple of seasons of this, the, the, the Tom Baker Doctor Who, whatever mm-hmm. number he was, five, mm-hmm. four, four five. five, something
1: like that. Yeah, four. Yeah,
2: yeah. And those two seasons are the best two seasons of that Doctor by far. He's got I mean, some it's,
1: good stuff in it. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> the, it's the key to time, and, uh, yeah, I, the, and the, I
1: think the Pirate Planet is one of his.
2: Yeah, and I exactly. That's my favorite of the whole thing, where the whole the whole planet jumps around another planet and sucks up its minerals. And and he's got a,
1: he's got a robot parrot on his
2: shoulder. (laughs) Yes, he does. And K nine kills it.
1: (laughs) All right, all right. So uh, let's talk about the premise of One Man's Poison.
0: Okay. All Um, right. Yeah, uh, it starts off with uh, two fellows flying around in a spaceship, and they're extremely hungry. sharing sharing a radish, (laughs) their last bit of food stuff on the whole ship, and they're approaching a planet that's going around a red dwarf, and, um, they, uh, you know, I'm not sure what their purpose is, I know they're looking for food, but I'm not sure why they were headed there in the first place, They're they're prospectors, okay, and, um this planet is just full of these really sharp mountains and i thought this was kind of a cool thing they had a yeah. the building that they found was like a donut resting on one of those spikes <laughs> yeah. and um so they go in there and they find a i don't know kind of a rosetta stone or a dictionary or whatever that's between the the language that's spoken by the aliens that built this thing and another set of aliens that they know so as they look at all these boxes it's almost like a warehouse as they look at everything and decipher all the markings they're almost like advertisements for various things and because of the trouble between the two languages by the you know so they're they're like the third removed language
1: it's Helg- Elg and Alumbrigian.
0: Right. Alumbrigian.
1: (laughs) Alumbrigians, yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So they're searching for anything that is edible and um, coming up with these hilarious translations for everything that's in these boxes. And um, so they start to open the boxes, and (laughs) if they think it's food-worthy, they open the box and are usually surprised at what they find.
2: Indeed. So I think that's the premise. Yep. Yep. The but purpose. they have a hard time finding food or deciding what is food. Yeah, yeah. Is is really, I mean, the, the products have actual marketing babble on them, you know, for a shiny antenna truck. Ah, right. And so <sighs> it's not labeled like, uh, you know, military, where it would say C-rations. You uh-huh. know, this has some some weird marketing name and some marketing speak. And so you really can't tell from... From the description of a lot of those things, what's going to be in them? Right, right. I,
1: when I when I heard sea rations the first time, I thought it was S E A, and I was, why are all these soldiers on the land eating soldier? You know, uh, sailors. Yeah. food? I, no, I, I, th- I didn't understand that. A B C,
2: right? <laughs> I think it goes up to G, but um, yeah, that's it's, and it depends on what it is and where you are and that sort of thing. Yeah. So if you're a, you know if you're a pilot bailing out, you get a different kit than you do if you're an infantry man in a trench.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Vigroom, <laughs> fill all your stomachs and fill them right.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's, and there's shell wax in there somewhere yeah, too. Yeah, so get, Oh, here it is. Ar-
0: Argusel makes your Thundra all tizzy, contains 30 arps of Ramstat pulse for shell lubrication.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So you start to get a picture of the aliens, but you never get a clear one. You just know a few things about them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: now, um, what what I noted, as I noted in uh, the seventh victim, our seventh victim, is that uh, their names, <laughs> their names are are not uh, fortuitous for their situation. One of them is named Hellman. And the other one's Kasker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, one's going to hell, and the other one's in a box.
2: You know? Yes. <laughs> yep. And yep. Uh,
1: it seems to be um, Sheckley is in... Lo- that's where he makes his jokes, is, is in the names of things. So I, I, I'm sure there's something to... You know, each of these... Uh, the, the names of these products has to be something he's, he's thinking of. Uh, just decoding it's going to be hard. Like Vigroom... I have no idea what that is. Um, right. But I guess they don't either.
2: Nope, mm-hmm. nope. No, but I probably would have bitten into something before they did in the story. I mean, <laughs> I, I would have tried a little piece of something somehow. Mm-hmm. I would have tasted it with my tongue. or I mean, they, they don't. The, it's they look at it and decide whether or not to eat it and then move on to the next thing mm-hmm. with no testing whatsoever so yeah eh, would you try yeah.
1: androgonites delight and verbell for longer curlier more sensitive antennae
2: verbell <laughs> i might go for i i might go for it's i mean you know before we had handheld chemical analysis you, you that's i mean that's what they taught you to do is to taste, you know, a little bit of the rock and figure out what's in it, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, and most chemists, up until, I don't know, the, you know, the 60s had horribly burnt tongues from <laughs> doing that all of their lives. And, oh, wow. and to determine your something. Tongue in the acid. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, yeah, I mean, you just put a little bit on the tip of your finger and touch it to your tongue. You can, you can tell a lot about, you know, generalized categorization of chemicals. By taste, mm-hmm. uh, but but over time, it you know it, it, it wears down your ability to taste it after a while. Mm-hmm.
1: I did um, during my uh, geology uh, final exam. They give you a, a tray full of rocks, and you have to try and identify as many of them as possible in the shortest period of time. Yeah. And and uh, the the easiest thing to do first is to get all the white rocks and put them in your mouth and if you can identify the one that's uh halite, I think that's the, the salt.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've
1: got number one.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: and you st- That's basically the only one you can identify that way. And then the other ones you start scratching, uh, looking at striations and all sorts of stuff like that. But mm. it's, yeah, it, it is yeah. one of the sciences that requires you to put your tongue <laughs> into the mix. All
0: right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in the story, um, they find a small grey box um, It says 6 inches by 3 by 3 And it says Valkorin's Universal Taste Treat For All Digestive Capacities And that is their first Real promising uh, Edible item And when they open the box There's a rectangularly oh, I'm sorry A rectangular rubbery red block That quivers slightly like jelly <laughs> And uh, Kasker says Bite into it <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah
0: me why not you yeah and then yep. um it gets really weird when it starts giggling at them <laughs> <laughs> and this was the moment where i said oh that's that's like a douglas adams thing it was fun yeah that's good <clears throat> yep yeah so this yeah. uh this block sits there in the corner and giggles softly to itself uh for pretty much the rest of the story every now and then it shows up yeah mm-hmm
1: the, I think the next one they, they picked up or walked over to was uh, a large yellow vat. And uh, Kasker says, what's it say? He says, it's a little bit hard to translate, but uh, he says freely. It reads, Morshville's Voozie, with lacto-ecto added for a new taste sensation. Everyone drinks woozy. Good before and after meals. No unpleasant after effects. Good for children. The drink of the universe. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: Fortunately, the translation's a little off.
0: Hmm. That's right. Yeah.
1: And the liquid starts flowing in, and, and it. They find out. Oh, I've got it wrong here. Boozy drinks everyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this giant blob tries to drink people and uh, uh, bales of hay or something. I, I'm not sure what.
2: Well, it's he throws crates of goods at it until it's satiated and goes back to its, its vat and <laughs> they slam the lid on <laughs> it's definitely alien yeah 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 Now there's a there's a lot of good angles worked here for for what the premise is and uh you know as as far as a, a short story goes uh, you know i i, I realized that that the ending is a bit of a letdown and i probably would have changed it but um compared to the seventh victim, which is more of a mechanical object it it it's plotted out far easier than than this one is so um, you know i don't it, it's it's that you know if <sighs> a short story to me is supposed to be this thing you hold in your hand that 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 spins around and throws off sparks and is just this sort of vessel of ideas in as compact a form as possible and uh, there's more ideas in Untouched by Human Hands than there are in Seventh Victim Seventh Victim is more -hmm. like a a Twilight Zone episode with a whammy at the end
1: yeah or an Alfred Hitchcock episode I've been watching a lot of Alfred Hitchcock lately and they're they're all setups, they're all setups for the end Mm -hmm. Yep, which I like yeah I do too well, that's all I have to say about untouched by Human Man's Hands mm-hmm. or uh, One Man's Poison. Um, I
0: Yeah, I didn't a, I didn't dislike this story, you know. I felt it was uh kind of light, lighthearted, funny, and there's a lot of crazy stuff in it, you know. So, I enjoyed it.
2: I think that there is one important issue here that is um we we are thinking of this story as commonplace based on our current consumption habits living in 2011. And that just basically shows you that the story was about 60 years ahead of its time. Now it's commonplace. Back then, it was, you know, somewhat m- more in your face and shocking to you. Um, and you had to write to a, a differently educated uh, group of readers.
1: Differently, and so, how? Differently, how?
2: Well, there there were far fewer, uh, you know, college graduates. You were writing for you know at a high school level, um, and isn't
1: our uh, isn't our high school level level there elementary school level though, aren't we getting uh, well, poor uh, yeah, more poorly yes. educated lower down?
2: Yes, but these things are motivated by ideas, not by the mechanics. That's why I go after the ideas. Mm. So the. The ideas were ahead of their time, and, and now we know just about how far ahead of their time, about 60 years, because <laughs> it now seems commonplace to us, because it's been done so many times. I mean, if you think about, you know, Laurel and Hardy versus Gilligan and the Skipper, it's the same thing. It's just Gilligan and the Skipper seems lower quality because it's a copy and these ideas have been copied so many times in the last 60 years that we now look at the story and go, eh. And that's essentially a measure of how far ahead of its time it was. And, ah. and how far behind the times current media is. So this story is something I would not be surprised to find on the Sci Fi Channel, <laughs> which to me means the Sci Fi Channel is about 60 years behind the times. <laughs>
0: That is a very, very well put. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um you know, it reminds me of uh, a story by um Spider Robinson called uh, Melancholy Elephants. Have you hmm. read that or heard that? Well, I have I, I, I have know, read okay. it,
0: but remind me of the premise on that one.
1: Um it's 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 almost a Heinlein story in that it's got a you know a senator and a I think a young attractive Oh, Yes, yes, woman, yes. Okay. and, and no. what happens is uh I think The young, attractive woman goes to the senator with this problem. She says, we've got to fix the copyright situation. Mm. Um, uh, If copyright laws are extended, um, we'll run out of ideas, and then our whole society will collapse because we will be just recycling everything in inferior and inferior ways. Um, When you have the copyrights uh, expire relatively quickly, people forget what happened before. Um, instead of, you know, still talking mm-hmm. about Mickey Mouse 75 or 80 or 100 years later, they say, Mickey who? Right? And right. They, don't have to, they don't have to, you know, have Mighty Mouse. And they don't have to have all the other rodents that are, you know, obviously related to uh, right. Mickey Mouse. Um, so <laughs> maybe that's, that's just sort of the same thing. Red. there. It's a really good story, um, mm-hmm. although it's, it is, like a lot of Heinlein stories, just a bunch of people sitting around talking. There's no yeah. there's no super action
2: going on. Which is actually a good segue into the seventh victim, because the premise there is you can't take away the violence without taking away the innovation and the drive and, and that sort of thing. So they have to keep murder alive.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um and this is the same you have to let the copyrights expire so people think there's something new under the sun indeed mhm
1: well let let us talk about seventh victim i i think this is uh i think this is an extremely fruitful story i read this story a, a couple of times and the more i read it the more i i can draw out of it i think uh but i also the first time i read it i thought what this is the story they made a movie about and Uh, and why is this such an important story? Why do people think this is, like, why did he even write a novelized (laughs) version and then two more? Is that just just for money? Did he just do it for money? And I know that uh, late in his career, he wrote a lot of media tie-in stuff, so I would guess that was for money, not because uh, he had something deeply interesting to say uh, say about a Star Trek, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there actually is a, a bit to draw out of it. And, um, uh, I, I think it, it starts with the first sentence here. It says, Stanton Freelane sat at his desk trying to look as busy as an executive should at 9.30 in the morning. Um, so, Stanton Freelane. I, 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 going, going in, I think, this guy, his name means something. because It's a Sheckley story, right? Right. Freelane. And then, okay, what's Freelane? Well, uh, Freelane? Freelane? I th- I was thinking, stand in the free lane. <laughs> it's something very <laughs> unwise to do, right? Stand on the highway, stand okay. in the free free lane on the highway, something like that. Because <laughs> he he is is like, yeah, you can do it for a minute, but then you're going to get run over, right? Maybe that's the idea there.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> um, uh, Greg, did I send you a copy of this one, or did I send yes the other one? Okay.
2: No, I I had the other one.
1: Okay, Again. so, uh. Just, I wanted to say at the beginning in the editorial, I guess um, hook at the yeah. beginning it says uh, the mo the most dangerous game," said one wa- one writer, "is man, and man is capitalized." But there is another, still more deadly. Yeah. So, <laughs> it gives you an idea what to expect, right?
2: Yeah, um, but you know this this story again is is a mechanical story, but it's a it's a teaching moment. So the reason that that I was given the most dangerous game and, and the lottery, um, mm-hmm. you know, no, no dispersions towards Shirley Jackson, but the lottery is not that great of a story. It just has a hook that lends itself to teaching kids the, the, the scope of fiction and what it can encompass. And well,
1: it's not, it does not, it's not what makes something great <laughs> is that it's, it's, it's a, it's a teaching tool.
2: Yes, but some teaching tools are, as I said mechanical they're they're not this you know if you were to flowchart both of these stories if you were to flowchart a couple of Sheckley stories, you would find that the seventh victim's flowchart was pretty simple compared yes. to the others and and so I'm just saying the elements in it are are more it's more of a formula story than 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 not Indeed. and and so if people think of this as a you know, is a teaching moment, but that doesn't make it a great story when you think about the entire canon of Sheckley's work. You know, he was a potboiler, and he, he had to pay the bills and feed the bulldog, so he wrote stuff.
1: Well, and, we're going to have to find out which ones you think are, are spectacular, because, um, I, I mean, I, I, I've read some really good Sheckley stories, including, I think my first one was uh, uh, The Lifeboat Mutiny. Which is about okay. a, which is about a a guy who, I guess like our, our previous characters in uh, One Man's Poison, about a guy who rents a, or buys a secondhand um, lifeboat, uh, mm-hmm. in order to prospect uh, on a new planet, um, and it's got some part of it disabled. I think it was an alien lifeboat or something, and it's like a physical actual boat on water. Right there, he's on some water planet, and in that one. Um, he does something wrong and ends up, you know, fighting with his own lifeboat. And it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a fun story, but I can't say it's a thousand times better than, than any of the other Sheckley stories I've read. Maybe, maybe uh, you know, yeah, there's some other good stuff.
2: Well, I don't know on that scale, but I would say that, like, The Leech is a better story than Seventh Victim in terms mm-hmm. of it being less mechanical. Um, same for Warrior Race. and uh, They're more idea driven short stories. Even Watchbird, I guess I would stick in that, but that's, you know.
1: He's got a lot of
2: them. Watchbird mm-hmm. is halfway between the two. You know, Watchbird also lends itself to the the, the, the visual types in Hollywood who say, ooh, I'm going to make that. You know, I mean, Seventh Victim. <laughs> yeah. is my, and I don't know if you've ever sat through the Tenth Victim. Uh, I
1: did, I, I liked it.
2: Oh, I love it. It's a great, kitschy sort of 60s retro Euro feel that I, you know, it's, and I love it. It's Marcello. super Italian. I loved it. Yeah. Well, I had a Marcello period where I, you know, watched. I mean, as soon as I saw Eight and a Half, and I went out and watched everything that Fellini and Marcello had done, and, and this was among them. And I still to this day really love the look of this movie and the feel of it. And,
1: even the dialogue's good. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's uh, it, it it basically strings out this story, the seventh victim story. It doesn't really change it. Uh, they change the title. Um, they string out the the length and they make it more international instead of. Yeah. Uh, so in this story, he goes to New York for his victim. I guess we should talk about the premise of seventh yeah. victim. Hey?
2: Um Okay. There's a there's. A, a, After the Sixth World War, there's concern that that, uh, technologically advanced civilizations automatically snuff themselves out, so they get together and figure out uh, an answer. And rather than having big wars, they decide to have mini wars, tiny wars between individuals. And if you are a member of society and you feel like killing someone, you can simply apply to the Emotional Catharsis Bureau, and they will give you permission to kill someone on... uh, on condition of you acting as a victim three months later for another hunter mm-hmm. and about 25% of society chooses to partake in this, uh, aspect of it. And, uh, there are clubs and our protagonist is trying to get to the, is it the 10th or the 10 yes. club? Or,
1: yeah. The tenth club is, is a stylish, uh, club with everybody who's in it.
2: It's, it's, and that north. means you've, you've been through 10 hunts, um, which also means you've survived 10 victims. You killed your hunter as the victim. So to get into the club, you've killed 20 people. Uh-huh. And this guy is on his seventh. And mm. for the first time, he opens up the package of who he's supposed to kill. And it's a woman and they are equal in society and they can sign up for this. And so he decides he's not going to waste all the time to, uh, Give, you know, pick up another kill that, that might be male and he goes to New York and decides to check her out and finds her and Sheckley ensues. hmm
1: <laughs> <laughs> It has a different tone than uh than our One Man's Poison. Yeah, I found One Man's Poison to be a lot more like the, the novel, the Sheckley novel we did. What was that one called? Uh
2: Mind Swap.
1: Mind Swap, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Found that yeah uh the The tone in in seventh victim is more straight ahead uh more alfred hitchcock like i guess and and one man 's poison is more uh is more like uh douglas adams yeah,
0: yeah. right well, one tone. of the details that I really liked about this story was the entire economy that's sprout sprouted up because of this you mm-hmm. know you can hire trackers and you can hire. People or watchers? Does he call them watchers? That spotters. 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 Yeah. That's it. Yeah, spotters that keep a lookout for someone who's going to try to kill you and let you know. Um, I thought that was an interesting detail.
1: Yeah. Well, he he even he's a uh, he's an ad writer for or not ad writer. He's a executive for his company is Protec Suits. They they make clothing that's I guess bulletproof and has. Uh, has uh
2: pockets hidden hidden. gun pockets yeah. Yeah. So yeah
1: you press a hidden button and a, the weapon flies out of the pocket and into your hand cocked and safety's off mm-hmm. so um, it's a yeah, it's, it's a fully developed little world inside the the story. I mean we don't know a lot of details about uh, you know if, if there's a limitation we know for example the um, the partner the business partner he um, he's retired. He's hung up his gun. His name is Morger. I thought that was nice.
3: <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Morger's retired, and he's, he's in the Ten Club. But it sounds like he didn't want to retire. It sounds like he had to retire because of his leg, I guess, rather than, you know, yeah. forced retirement. You could probably play until you, wanted, until you got killed, if you wanted to, is my guess. I agree. So, and if there's a novelized version, uh, it, it may detail that but uh, it's interesting because talking it over, every, all the students I talk, talked about this story with, they all thought it was interesting because um, it's a game where people kill people. <laughs> um, and we, one of the questions is, is it wrong to kill someone who, who volunteers to play in the game? And you'd think that they had some uh, similar reactions. They did. They all said, no, it wasn't wrong. <laughs> i thought that was really surprising because to me i was thinking well it's not that clear right well they all no no of course it's okay as long as you volunteer it's okay so what Mm -hmm. What?
2: well i I mean you volunteer to go to war when you join the army
1: that's true (laughs) that's true and in that sense you are playing the game right
2: right and and in reality i mean these kids probably aren't too far off the mark. There, there is no such thing as human rights. There are civil rights, mm. but there's no inherent right of me not to kill you if I feel like it or vice versa. That's, that's because Canada and the United States said, hey, you shouldn't kill each other. Not because we couldn't do that if you and I were in the wild. <laughs> I mean, the point is that there are no human rights. There are no intrinsic human rights. You have to set them up as part of the structure of a civilization.
1: I thought you would, I thought you would think they were self-evident.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: I was going to say no. that there are, there are some things that are self-evident.
1: Well, the thing is, is uh, I think it's in there because it's precisely because it's not self-evident. You, you have right. to write you have to write it down, and you have to get. Well, you have to write
0: it. it down anyway. Yeah, yeah. You have
1: to write it down huh? and make everybody agree. Otherwise, it's not self-evident.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um,
1: right. And I just uh, it, it surprised me. Like a lot of these kids are, you know, uh, supposedly Christian. You know, in the sense that they they go to church, and but they don't seem to have that, uh, you know, "Thou shalt not kill" part. Uh, you know, emblazoned into them yet. And I was well, thinking, well, that would be the, the thing that makes people say, it's, it's wrong, or thou shalt not murder, right? It's number one on the list. Or...
2: Isn't that a function of where the church is in terms of its evolution and, and ultimate reconstitution into some other religion? Hmm. I mean, right now we live in the age of the half-believer, so uh, a lot of people just cherry pick the things that they like, and, uh, and that leaves the door open to decide one way or the other. They're, they're baffled by the dead weight of, of dogma from ancient times that has to jive with modern times, and they just, don't, they just ignore the whole thing and pick out the things they like and ignore the things they don't like, like, like birth control or... Or something like that. Well, you you so, pretty
1: much have to, though, because it's right. You know, you've like, got a book. If you're if you're just going New New Testament alone, you've still got a book that doesn't have a, one consistent story. It's it's a it's a whole bunch of stories that all teach lessons that could, you know, you can. That's the whole point is why it is so popular. Is you can cherry pick it. You've got an interpreter who right. can go in, reach in there, and get it out. But it used to be <laughs> like I'm bemoaning the the, the unchristianess of the world not being well. I should like myself, you know, but
0: I feel I should leap in there. But oh, um, jump in. But the thing the thing is, you know, Greg is absolutely right in that you know, in the Catholic Church, which is where I'm I'm um, Catholic, and the Catholic Church is always talking about exactly what Greg just said. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that are you know picking this and that and I can't say that I don't as well. You know, it's almost a um you know, I, I don't know. I I don't know how how a person justifies it in their mind, but I know that that most of us do it. <laughs> you know, I there's not a lot of 100% you know, I'm I'm with you 100% of the way uh folks out there. Um well, right. the,
1: it's it, I think you know, the flourishing of all the 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 many many Protestant Religions, especially in, in the United States, where it it is very flourishing, has uh, got to have something to do with with the, with the fact that the book lends itself to so many different uh, philosophies. So you get um, everything from you know crazy protesters uh, insisting that the country's not religious enough, that's why we're being punished with the death of our soldiers, to uh, you know Quakers. Mm-hmm. Which really are the opposite in the sense that they'll they'll put their own lives in jeopardy to try and create peace right right well I may, perhaps that's not the opposite, but it is a, a vast spectrum of beliefs all stemming from one set of source materials mm-hmm. and right. uh,
2: which I, which has been put in a blender and chopped up and pieced back together again i mean it's it's such a piecemeal effort, in and of itself. If you try and take all the pieces apart and and, and reassemble it the way it actually was meant, uh, it, you you can't help but cherry pick. It's. I mean, we even do that with thought. You know, there there's a there, it's called rationalization, take, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Take 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 religion out of it, okay? There's there is a scientific method. There is a way that you're supposed to do science, and it has three parts to it. You're supposed to be uh, you know, there's a rational part, an empirical part, and a scholastic part. And you have to use all three of those parts for it to be peer-reviewed, and people can then comment on and try and poke holes in your hypothesis and all that sort of thing. Um, and every 12-step program, every bullshit way to lose weight or whatever system they come up with, these fad systems, they go through scientific method and they cherry pick the things they like and they leave out the things they don't like. Mm. And they create this system and they call it a new thing and everyone tries it for a while and it's a fad and then they don't lose weight and the next thing comes out. So if you go back to the original, if you look at all three legs of that stool, you need all three of them or the stool falls down. But everyone's looking for a shortcut, so they go through and they pick out all the things they think are hard and they keep the things that are easy and say, Try this.
1: It's uh, perhaps because we we don't uh require a degree to buy a lab coat. You know? <laughs> no, <laughs> when you, when you see the people that, I, I think there was a documentary not that long ago about, um, about all these, you know, there's a, a new age convention or something like that, and there's a bunch of people standing around in lab coats, um, talking you know, science gobbledygook um, you know, energy fields and all sorts of like, you know, obviously unscientific claims that are coming out of their mouths, and yet it, it's it's cloaked in in, you know, the, the service that we, we do rely on which is science if yeah. you just put on that that lab coat, that makes it okay for the actor who's, who's <laughs> reciting the, uh, the list of gobbledygook to, to, to sound scientific.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it's easy to do this cherry. Almost picking. like
1: I a mean, cargo cult thing, really. You, well,
2: uh, no, actually, the, the three legs of scientific method, if you think about them, there are, they have individual definitions. So, in other words, if you are nothing but scholastic, you're a religion. If you are nothing but rational, you're a philosopher. Hey. And if you are... What? Right. Rational- nothing-
1: Rationalists are, are only one, one aspect of philosophy.
2: <laughs> I, I understand that. Just- I understand that. I'm saying if 100% of what you do is, in, is on the rational leg, then you're essentially a philosopher. If 100% is on the empirical leg, you're essentially a, a, a secular, fascist, kind of communistic... <laughs> You know, well no i mean think about it they they say we know what's right we've tested things and here's how society's going to work and that's nothing but empirical stuff being extrapolated into the into the greater world so you need a mixture of all three of these things to think properly but everybody looks for the shortcut and and so there's poor critical thinking skills because the people teaching critical thinking don't actually understand the process.
1: Hmm.
0: Yep,
2: interesting.
1: Uh, uh let me let me read a section of the story here. I think this is is going to be very fruitful. Um this is right after he he phones into the emotional catharsis bureau and has um wanted to check to make sure that um uh, Mary, uh, Jean, sorry, Janet Marie Patzig, has actually signed up, and that she actually is playing the game because he can't believe it. Um, it I think he calls twice, actually, in the story. He still, he still can't believe it, even after he calls them the first time and checks. He still can't believe it. So, um, in that sense, it it is uh, 60 years behind the times in the sense. Yep. That women, women. Uh, being equal citizens is is a new thing in the story All right, so here's what it says damn women he grumbled to himself always trying to horn in on a man's game why can't they stay home but they were free citizens he reminded himself still it just didn't seem feminine he knew that historically speaking the emotional catharsis board had been established for men and men only the board had been formed at the end of the fourth war uh, world war or sixth as some historians counted it At that time, there had been a driving need for a permanent lasting peace. The reason was practical, as were the men who engineered it. Simply, annihilation was just around the corner. In the world wars, weapons increased in magnitude, efficiency, and exterminating power. Soldiers became accustomed to them, less and less reluctant to use them. But that saturation saturation point had been reached. Another war would truly be a war to end all wars. There would be no one left to start another. So this peace had to last for all time, but the men who engineered it were practical. He says that twice, right? It's interesting. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They recognized the tensions and dis- dislocations still present, they, the cauldrons in which wars were brewed. They asked themselves why peace had never lasted in the past. Because men like to fight, was their answer. Oh no, screamed the idealists. <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah. men... Who who engineered the peace were forced to postulate, regretfully, the presence of a need for violence in a large percentage of mankind. Men aren't angels. They aren't friends either. They are just very human beings with a high degree of combativeness. With their scientific knowledge and power, they had at that moment, the practical men, uh, sorry, they had at that moment, the practical men could have gone a long way towards breeding this trait out of the race. Many thought this was, an an- was the answer. The practical men didn't. They recognized the validity of competition, love of battle, strength in the face of overwhelming odds. These, they felt, were admirable traits for a race and insurance towards its perpetuity. Without them, the race would be bound to retrogress. The tendency towards violence, they found, was inextricably
2: inextra, inextricably,
1: linked with the ingenuity, flexibility, and drive. The problem, then, to arrange a peace that would last uh, after they were gone, to stop the race from destroying itself without removing the responsible traits. The way to do this, they decided, was to re-channel man's violence, provide him with an outlet and expression. The first big step was the legalization of gladiatorial events, complete with blood and thunder, But there, but more was needed. Sublimations worked only up to a point. Then people demanded the real thing. There was no substitute for murder. And mm-hmm. it goes on like that, talking about the, basically the history of how they ended up in this situation. But I, I think it's a... Take it, take it as... Do you think that this is what causes wars, is we have a desire to murder people? Or is Sheckley just taking the piss with us? Because uh, I, I don't think that that's it exactly. I think it's related.
2: Um, no, I think that, I think that our genes are in control and we are essentially vehicles for genes to, to make them mobile. And, sense. and sometimes, um, there are conflicts between where various groups of genes want to be. And that causes them to try and to destroy each other, each other's cars. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't, don't, know, that, I don't know
0: that I believe that you remember um, when we were talking to professor Rabkin, Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked just briefly about, um, Genesis and, uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, Adam and Eve eating the apple. And then the first event after that was, um, Cain killed Abel. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, um, we talked about 2001 where, um, the thing that the monolith taught the natives was to kill the animals for food. Mm-hmm. Right. And both of those are acts of violence, Right. So it's, it's almost as if both stories are saying that aggressiveness is a requirement to move on.
2: Well, can we change that to competition? Competition, on every, perhaps, yeah. On, on every
1: Unrestricted level. competition.
2: And, right. One of those levels happens to be kill the thing, but mm-hmm. there are many levels for competition. But, but you must compete in order to achieve results. But okay. unrestricted competition. Yeah. yeah. So yeah,
0: I, I, I guess right. the reason that I bring that up that's, is I I I don't think it's a necessarily a desire to murder somebody, but it is an um, a competitive quality. I, I would agree with that word, competitive quality. That um, without a competitive quality, I, I mean, just look at the space race as an example. Look at what we did when we had the competition of Russia. And we wanted to beat them really bad. So in a very short <laughs> period of time, we did some incredible stuff, right? And since yep. then, we've done Zippo, you know? And, well, uh, that's
1: not, it's not Zippo. It's just,
2: it's not competitive. It is almost it nothing.
0: Is, it is almost <laughs> nothing, yeah.
2: It's not, it, it, no, what's happened is it's been corporatized. Mm-hmm. So, see, like the brain trust that was put together for World War II, for code cracking and and building of atomic bombs and that sort of thing should never have been allowed to break up. The government should have kept all those guys together and they should have kept on working. And what, what really happened is they all went out and started their own companies and ended up competing with one another. So data general was fighting with, you know, Cray and, and those guys. And, and, um, they actually used to work together and now, everything instead of being this free flow of information where you know one scientist gets to talk to another scientist regardless of national borders or ideology, and actually just try and move forward, which is the goal of what they're doing uh, changes to be proprietary and now every i mean hell if you if you happen to decode a piece of the genome, you can run to the patent office and patent it mm-hmm. and and that, you know, the standards were not owned back then. You didn't own a standard. Uh, if I want to build a, uh, you know, a receiver uh, to listen to music through, I go to Radio Shack and I buy a potentiometer for my volume knob. I don't pay, you know, the estate of Michael Faraday a nickel. <laughs> Uh, mm. That's just the standard. Is this potentiometer, and and this has a lot to do with your guys' philosophy towards copyright law. Uh, a standard. I'm not sure. Come. I'm not
1: sure how far Scott's gone on that, <laughs> that but it's well, definitely my philosophy.
2: Mm. Is that okay. it's got
1: to be more open. Um, yeah, keep going. I got a story to tell, though. Keep going. Uh,
2: uh, okay. I. Well, I'm just saying that the. You, you know, you you have to it, it, look at. You know something like Windows, for example, or or DOS before it. You know Microsoft became the de facto standard. That's okay. Okay, if if everyone just decides to buy your mousetrap, then you built a better mousetrap. But you you shouldn't be able to turn around and sue the next guy who you know whatever puts a trash can icon on his thing and say, wait a minute, I own the trash can icon. You know, at at one point in this country, the United States Patent Office, which has been defunded and so out of its depth that it doesn't even understand the stuff it's looking at anymore, gave out a patent for what is called Seek technology. It's the way your hard drive looks for data, the heads on your hard drive. And and it had been used for decades prior to this. Uh, And all of a sudden, everyone gets a letter in the mail that says, hey, you owe me money. Because this guy got, to ma- got, got a standard patented that just hadn't been patented prior to that. Wow. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, there's some things that should, you should be able to make a buck off of, and there's other things that, are, that you shouldn't. And, and it's where that line is drawn is, is to bring this full circle back. Uh, you know, the gratification that you get out of it, in other words, pay or no pay, um, is why you would choose to join the Murderers' Club in this story, or not? It's it's you know two sides of the same coin.
1: One of one of the things that struck me while you were talking was the fair you, you were saying Faraday doesn't have to get his. The, I guess the estate of of Faraday doesn't have to get a its royalties from the the uh, electronics that you're buying, um, right. In uh, I, I just finished listening to the uh, the last first Heinlein novel. Um, it's uh, called For Us the Living, and one of the things that's in that story is they talk about how um, everyone gets uh, a check in the mail every month from the government, and it's called your inheritance, and and the the idea is that this. This supplementary income or general income that everybody gets isn't just good for uh, economics in the sense of distributing the wealth around uh, but also it's actually you're right because uh, we're we're standing on the shoulders of all the people who came before us who are all our ancestors and created all this wonderful technology that makes our lives much better. They are royalty checks for everyone, right? yeah, not just royalty checks for the families of some guy, you know, so if William Shakespeare his family was uh you know raking in the dough from from all the adaptations right. of Shakespeare right now he wouldn't be raking in the dough right they wouldn't be raking in the dough because the the uh, the flourishing of Shakespeare is largely because it 's free right that no anyone can start with it and anyone can work with it and it doesn't require that and yet uh, it all uh, makes us all greater right
2: i, mean, I... Yeah, I mean Shakespeare wrote proto stories. All of the all of the raw materials that you need to tell most of the stories that can be told are are there. He's like a textbook. Um, so I think copyright or no copyright. I mean, what you're saying is that West Side Story shouldn't have to pay the Shakespeare right. estate. And I don't I don't have a problem with. A reimagining, uh, what's become known as a reimagining. Uh, but before that, it nobody tried to hide the fact that West Side Story was Romeo and Juliet. Um, I, I just think there are some people who transcend their genre. Um, you know, Miles Davis, Frank Zappa, guys like that, and Shakespeare is one of them. And they, they he's actually contributing to the human condition by codifying all the various story types that there are in, in a way where scholars can go in there and pick them out and, and, and lay them out so that they, they can be recreated uh, in an infinitely, uh, you know, inventive ways of, of producing that same, there's only, there's only seven stories and you got to, tell them differently it's the window dressing that makes them different uh, shakespeare shows you the skeleton so i don't blame writers for using that stuff and and retelling it because that's all we're doing is stealing stuff that we know and repackaging it in new ways there are no ideas i i consider myself a success if i take two things that haven't been put together before and put them together
1: or recently recently yeah. It doesn't have to be before because somebody probably put together two ideas that you don't know about and just they haven't done it recently, right? Uh,
2: Correct. Well, and there are new things coming along. I mean, in terms of you know we were whatever talking about our smartphones earlier. That's that's an idea that wasn't available to Shakespeare to, to use a smartphone. So so I can put two things together that have not been put together before, but I can't come up with a fresh plot that isn't a a composite of previous plots that have been used. The devices are 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 codifiable. You can look them up.
1: Well I think mm-hmm. I think I would be more referring just to this not so much the the the, the plots but as the, the actual dialogue right so the dialogue uh of Shakespeare is 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 often not changed much or if it is it's just edited down a bit, right? Um, because okay. the, it's a, a poetically it's poetically put the scenes are poetically put together yep and and in that we are uh the inheritors of that wonderfulness right um but let's let's get back to uh seventh victim for a while
3: <laughs> i know we
1: we stray we stray okay um, i I think we can pretty much put aside the the woman as a as a, uh, you know, is it okay for a woman to play the game? I mean, I don't think even Sheckley had a problem with that, really. I think the character has a problem with it, but that's to illustrate sort of the uh, the feeling of the time when there's a story. Well, the, fr- the, the
0: bigger problem is that the bigger problem for the um, protagonist is when he goes to kill her, she is just. Not trying to hide in any way, she knows she's a victim, right? Mm-hmm. And she's just sitting there, sad, you know. And he's like, "What is she doing?" You know. So his his main problem, I I don't think you know. Maybe initially it was the woman thing, but the main problem is that she yes, seems eventual. to be committing suicide. Um, you know, she seems resigned to it. She's not, you know. He 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 goes. He alternates. He gets upset because she's not playing the game. <laughs> And you know, um you know what i'm saying he 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 goes through these ways right. he he's upset, he's um feels badly about what's going on right. <clears throat> because but she's she, not he, defending he herself in any way, and he feels like that she's just trying to commit suicide right, a bad sport right, that's right, yeah he did call her a bad sport right
1: and or bad game in the <laughs> right mm-hmm. in the sense
2: yeah that, yeah yeah yeah,
1: uh, if you've got uh, i was i was in talking about the, the story with my students, you know the, the key word is catharsis, right it's the emotional catharsis bureau, not the murder bureau. Mm-hmm. It, and, right. and I talked about what a euphemism is and well, is it an emotional catharsis um, or is it a murder right? Well, the murder is the catharsis or the, the end of the story. And so what I would say is we say it's imagine you go to the theater and you're watching a production of Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet is even better. You're watching a production of Romeo and Juliet, and about two-thirds of the way through the story, just as you're you know, really into it, the, someone pulls the, pulls the fire alarm, and everybody leaves the building, including the actors. And they're all standing around, waiting for the fire truck to come. Eventually, the fire truck comes, they clear the building, and by that time, you have to go home, because the, there's going to be another production starting. And you, know, you get your money back, but are you satisfied? Right. No, of course mm-hmm. you're not satisfied. Even though you know that the actors, uh, you know, you know Romeo and Juliet. You know that the actors are just actors, and you know that the that the story is just a story. You still want it to be finished, and it's not finished. So you go home very unsatisfied, very deeply unsatisfied. Almost, it's almost like a sexual frustration, right? It, it's it's a, 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 an unsatisfaction that is. Um, can only be satisfied by a catharsis of the the story ending, right? The way it has to end. And it or doesn't another end. story. Right, but it has to be finished, right? It has to it has to wrap up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: and and in a murder, you know, if you're hunting someone, you're hunting them out. It's like taking your gun out into the woods and and almost shooting something. Um, you you might say, well, there's the fu- the sport of the hunt, right? that's what they might say but you don't get the catharsis of the hunt if the game is tied to the ground uh and waiting for you to shoot it right it's wrong whereas yeah, it's a, sorry
2: no i, I was just going to say it's unrequited it's, it's <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes yes yeah, it's unrequited it, and and yet uh let's let's talk let's talk spoilers okay mhm all right um, the <laughs> This is her game right she She knows what she 's doing <laughs> she 's played this game before it 's her right. tenth victim right right and and she 's treating she 's treating him like the the uh, she's she 's playing victim, but uh, capital v, but she is hunting him in the same way she knows what will prevent him from shooting her he doesn 't want to shoot her because it doesn 't provide the catharsis that he 's looking for he 's not joyful in, in killing he's joyful in chasing the kill and the killing is the end, end of the story just like if you were to sit down and watch the final scene of a play uh, not knowing who any of the characters are you wouldn't have any satisfaction from that you don't get any satisfaction from just the kill it has to be the hunt or at least for Freelane, right mm-hmm. maybe other people enjoy some different part but the way the story is set up um, it being the emotional catharsis bureau, I thought that that was rather interesting. What do you guys yeah. think?
2: Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I I agree. Yep. And as do I. I but I also think that there's a ton of unfinished. Uh, it's swirling around us. I mean, how many uh, series got canceled prematurely and couldn't be resolved? <laughs> I mean, it, they're they're constantly. Happening around us all the time, and what we do is we replace them with another story. And well,
1: I think though that, uh, like, no matter like I, I like shows like Dexter and stuff like that, right? Stuff where you you say to yourself, "Oh, I wonder what's going to happen next." That's not the same thing as as a story like, for example, Babylon Five. When Babylon Five was airing, um, we knew that there was a story, a story that was going somewhere that had an ending in mind, even if we didn't know what it was. Because right. the author promised it, and just like I think a lot of people got sucked into watching Lost for the same reason, they thought that there was a, uh, plot. they thought mm-hmm. that there was a story, and there really wasn't. Whereas in Babylon Five, he actually did have something planned out, and he had some ideas. And although it got a little bit screwed up at the end because of the way he, you know, the way it was uh, half canceled and then rebrought back and all that right. stuff, he he compressed the ending. The, 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 the final season isn't really the end of the story because he wrapped it up in the fourth season, right? So the fifth is whatever. But the point is, is, when that show was on the air, third season, fourth season, and they were worried about being canceled, I was freaked out because I wanted to know what was going to happen next.
3: <laughs>
1: because I knew, not, not just what was going to happen next, I wanted to know what was going to happen, as in the end. And when it wrapped up, I wasn't upset, right? Right. But I, I I got my catharsis. Whereas I don't think the majority of television shows today are anything close to being interested in anything other than keeping you, you know, saying what's going to happen next. Rather than there yeah, is no. I got
0: I got frustrated enough yes. with those that I I hardly watch anymore. There's not a lot that I watch. Um, right. It's all. Yeah, Game it, of Thrones all- is starting tonight, and one of the reasons why I'm excited about that one is that. It's a 10 episode run, and I'm assuming that they're done with the 10. And someday I will get to see all the 10, even if they stop showing them tomorrow. You know what I mean? It'll show oh, up on DVD or whatever. But it's the a story complete.
1: doesn't finish, right? Well, it,
0: yeah, but <laughs> it still. It's the it, first it, the, novel, but it the, doesn't finish. Yeah, but the first novel still, it, um, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of threads left open. You're right. And it, it um, you don't
1: get a satisfaction of saying that was a story well told. You don't have everybody dies, you know, at the end. Well, that, yeah, and you're not going to have this at the end, but when you you do have an end. All, the, all you, the players are dead. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Yeah, but you still have an end. Um I think it was with there was a series called Drive that mm-hmm. had Nathan yeah. Fillion in it, and I got yeah. totally caught up in that, and when they pulled that rug out from under me, that was the end for me. Yeah, <laughs> it that was pretty was a much but- it's just like, okay, I'm done trying to follow these things unless they're uh they've got some under their belt, you know.
1: Yeah, I think and- I think there is a show that 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 successfully defeated my expectations and also defeated everyone else's and that's why nobody watched it. It's called The Wire, right? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if you watch The Wire, you are deeply unsatisfied every episode.
3: <laughs> every episode yeah. you
1: you're you're watching it and you're saying, "Yep, this is some powerful stuff and I'm deeply unsatisfied." And then at the end of the season, you're still deeply unsatisfied as are all the characters. And And yet it was incredibly difficult not to watch it because it was telling so much truth. I think it was telling so much truth that you, you would have to watch it anyways, Right. it's deeply unsatisfying. Even the ending is (laughs) not satisfying.
2: That category of ambivalent storytelling is, is a genre in and of itself. Mm -hmm. and, And it does set up a groove inside you that, that, causes you to just keep listening to the white noise episode after episode and 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 then they sneak the message in underneath and uh, and it's some giant message it's it's Mm -hmm. some message about human nature or something like that when you so
0: i don't i'm sorry when you talk about ambivalence and stuff is this i've never seen the wire but is the storytelling something you know like turn of the screw ambivalent uh, in which oh, yeah, you yeah. when you think about it it gets more interesting i mean that's what mm. that was my experience was no
2: it's more like never ending it's mm-hmm. it's i mean if you want to actually describe like the torture of being in hell, you got to go after the eternal aspect of it. And when you're a storyteller, what you do is you never pay off. You keep everybody ambivalent. You, there are little payoffs along the way. Mm-hmm. You see individual character arcs, but you don't see an overreaching story arc until you get to the end. And then you say, oh man, this thing was about the the, the hum of human nature, the the, the undercurrent. It's no. a few
1: years in a in in a city that's what it is right it's yeah a, in few a bad years bad, in a city yeah. in a in a <laughs> yeah in a bad city <laughs> um yeah. uh, but that they told it in in the city that they didn't so beautifully i i mean it, it is beautiful, it is a beautiful, beautiful perhaps one of the most beautiful shows ever, and yet it's so grim and stark and 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 emotionally difficult uh but it doesn't have any um it doesn't have any like the message. Is, is just what they illustrate, right? That unsatisfactory human condition. Hmm. There, isn't, right. there isn't a, you know, things can get better. That's a message. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no things can get better. Things can change a little bit, but people aren't changing.
2: Right. That's right. the and
1: message. <laughs> things uh, well, are mes-
2: static. Right. The message is you can't fix this neighborhood. Move.
1: Oh man. It's true. It's yeah. true. <laughs> you yeah. can't fix this neighborhood move. Something um, well.
2: can't be fixed. Uh
1: mm-hmm. did you ever see the uh the other related show to that? Um it was called The Corner. It, the, the most no. bleak and stark show ever. It's about uh it's about it's it's ex- exactly like uh homicide or um The Wire okay. except it's it's told from the point of view of of some heroin addicts. And, okay. And they Beautifully, uh, beautifully human characters in the most horrifying of conditions, and just chugging along, trying to make things okay. And <laughs> if the message yeah. was, "Don't be one of these guys."
3: <laughs> <laughs> right. That's
1: the message: Try yeah. not to get involved with drugs because you really right. wouldn't want to be hanging out with them.
3: Well, but if the you message: were,
1: is... It's not as bad as you you know you might think. It's still horrible. But mm-hmm. it again, it's not as bad as you might think.
2: Right, right. Well, the, well, there are there are bright points in in you know spots in the day for even the most miserable people. It's it's you know I mean the the message changes there to be you know okay here's how you get out of the neighborhood you make a bunch of money and you don't do it this way and then so yes I mean it is it's difficult to deal with unresolved things but there are unresolved things in the universe that are part of the mechanics there certainly are (laughs) yeah yep yep yep, so I I think you know I think maybe the best uh, example of this that we're talking about in terms of visual media and story arc would be Firefly because you get 13 episodes and then you get a movie that fills in five years of story arc in an hour and a half and yeah. it, for purposes of study, you can see what they were thinking and how they were going to slowly dole this out to us over six or seven seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives you some insight into the minds of, of you know, one type of, of group of people that make these shows with these incredibly long story arcs. Yeah. Um, Babylon 5
0: well, uh, was very satisfying to me. Yeah. Um, you know the huge story arc over five seasons, yeah. well, actually, it was kind of over four seasons, wasn't it? I mean, the fifth yeah. season yeah. kind of seemed like a tack on, I guess, but the uh yeah. but it was a it was a long story arc, and they had a plan and and it was rewarding yeah yeah
1: it's it, it's not even they it's he had a plan right 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 that's if right. you watch the first season m- most of it is <laughs> deeply unsatisfying because it's it's mostly recycling you know sort of. Half plots from other other science fiction shows or something that was like it and in the 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 big problem with the show is also that it was static right they were in a place, and everybody came to them it was a I think it was actually amazing that the show is so good, given how many strikes it has against it uh you know you 've got a whole yeah. bunch of people who are n- not going anywhere the the budget for new sets is is infinitesimal, um, you know mm-hmm. the uh, the actors are I think every I think it was ununionized because they couldn't afford to uh, they had to do it outside of the system or something like that it, it was incredibly cheaply done and right. yet it works so well because they was they were actually doing what all the other shows promised, which is telling a story from beginning to end and if you if you skip large swaths of the first season, maybe take the first episode and the last episode, and a couple, I think there's a couple in, in the middle that were written by J. Michael Straczynski, you don't really need to watch any of the ones that weren't written by him, because I think everything from the second season to the fourth season was. And then the fifth season's got a bit of a mix.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And he he knew what he was doing, and I know that there was a writer's Bible and such, but that wasn't really the point of... Of uh, the show for me. It wasn't just to see stories set in the universe. It was to see where he's going with this. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he went somewhere interesting. He did. It was, it's Lord of the Rings in space with Lovecraft. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. the way I looked at it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but if I were in the estate of Alfred Bester, I'd sue the son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, think, I think that uh, it's a loving tribute.
2: <laughs> I guess, but wow. I mean, well, I guess.
1: It's yeah. a loving <laughs> tribute.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay. The demolished man. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I. I. I got it. I just, you know, to make him the character that he that he was is probably not true to Bester's actual <laughs> character. Is all I'm saying. But um, yeah. And, and when we get that payoff, it, it, it's just one category of storytelling. It's a, it's a far more satisfying form of, of, of storytelling. But in order to understand the whole story, how all the stories connect to one another, you need to have some of these ambivalent stories that, that the message is you can't fix it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep.
1: what, what's the, what's the uh, message of the seventh victim? Our seventh victim.
2: <sighs> hmm.
1: Women mm. are more dangerous than you think:
2: <laughs> no, no, that's that's just the whammy at the end. That's all that's meant to be i I could see this as a as a Twilight Zone episode or something with with no problem whatsoever, and it was an X minus one, I think right so yeah, um, you know, they saw that same thing in there um, i i I think the message is that we are an aggressive species and have to face that if we're going to learn to not be aggressive.
1: I, I'll tell you what, uh, what it made me think of, and this will be a wrap-up because I know Scott needs to do something, but um, I, it made me think of how much I, I enjoy playing uh, shoot 'em up games. You know, I play uh, Battlefield 2, mm-hmm. and I love Battlefield 2 incredibly much, mostly because I run around with a machine gun killing people, and yet I... I'm deeply against doing that in real life. I, I would want to be hiding in a bunker somewhere in a in a forest that is nowhere near the battle, right? Yeah. Deeply hidden away because I'm deeply a coward in real life. However, um, and I, I also think it would be traumatic to actually kill someone, but I, I greatly enjoy virtually killing people. And it's one of my great pleasures in life. So uh, do you think that... Uh, one One of the explanations for why we have reduced crime in this era is not that that we have um everybody in, dangerous is in prison but because of birth control has allowed people to uh have fewer unwanted children, which has caused less less violent crime. I think that that makes sense but i I would guess that violent video games have massively increased the number of people indoors not killing each other in real life no. they're're they're,
2: I think they've had an effect, but I don't know if it's been. I think it's a lateral effect. I don't. I don't think the two things are connected. Uh, there's an episode. You ever watch uh, Penn and Teller's bullshit mm-hmm. show? Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's one where they cover this, and they take this nine year old kid who plays video games five hours a day, and is killed. Right. You know, right. And they give him a real. Gun and bring him out the shooting yeah. range, and, and the kid just starts crying and runs to his mother. I mean, he, he <laughs> doesn't want the real thing. <laughs> um, and I don't blame him. I mean, I, you know, yeah, I don't blame him. It, the, the real thing is noisy and messy and, and, and dangerous
1: and scary. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I do understand people who, who find that intoxicating. I personally don't. I mean, I have many other ways to get intoxicated without depriving (laughs) something of its life. You know what I mean? But, um, but I understand the people that do, and I understand the rush that they get from it. And, and (sighs) I don't know if I should begrudge them that I I should have a civil society that says they can't do it. And so they have to live their lives in a form of ambivalence, but uh, I don't, I wouldn't deny them. I wouldn't engineer it out of the species we um
1: to- i should i should also point out um that one of the things that interested my students the most most of them are you know headed to university shortly right. um, was that the this is a game that is actually you know the the game in Se- seventh victim is actually played in real life at universities um, where people people play a game called assassination where you Join a club, just like they do in the in the world of Seventh Victim. Um, You give your name, your your address, your picture of you, and and then someone else hunts you. Then you get killed. Then you're out of the game. But if you live, then you hunt someone else, right? And it's a it's a tournament style game, but it's played not with real weapons, right? It's it's played with. Fake weapon. So one of the things you could do is you you know that they're going to use their textbook. You you put a piece of paper inside the textbook that says bomb, right? And so when they open the textbook, bomb, they're dead. You you've, you've assassinated them. Uh, the game's over. Or you're in the library and somebody comes up behind you and puts a wooden spoon in your back, and you're you've been shot, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, this. Uh, i was saying, you know. You know, one of the considerations you should have is, is education is, is good and, and it's wonderful, but you also have to have fun in life. Wouldn't you want to go to a university that had this as an option? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I would. I'm talking to myself.
2: Um, yeah, but I, I would try. I would love to expand that game so that the, the people sitting around you in the classroom when you read the word bomb are also dead. I want, (laughs) I want the collateral. I want the, uh, because in the real world, there's always blowback.
1: That's right. That's, that's one of the things that's glossed over in seventh victim is, is that, you know, the police don't get involved unless you accidentally hit someone who isn't, who isn't uh, in the game. Right. Right. Um, I think that uh, this is the major reason this, this game won't ever be actually implemented is collateral damage.
2: Right. Exactly. But, but, you know, a, a lot of Sheckley's stuff is, is an illustrative thought experiment. And, and you, got just, you, you just go with it because it allows you to understand why it would never be allowed.
0: This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.